reading this morning from John chapter 12, beginning at verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Our Father, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the blessing of being able to come and to sing praises and to pray and to be together, uh, to worship together. Worship is our desire, and we pray, Lord, that that would be the case this morning. Bless now the reading of your word and the exposition of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Well, it's, uh, it's good to see you all this morning, and thanks, thanks for being here, braving the cold to come together and worship this morning. Good to see you. It very well could be that 2024 is the year that our Lord returns. It could be that 2024 is the year that the tribulation starts. We don't know the exact timing of all these things. But if you look at what's going on in the Middle East right now, it surely does look like things are coming together based on Ezekiel 28 when the nations surrounding Israel uh, go to war with Israel. Now, Israel's been in many wars, but I don't think there's a time in the history of Israel, in modern times at least, when the threat has been as pervasive as it is right now. And who knows, who knows what is next? I am, I'm just glad that we don't trust in governments and political leaders. We trust in the living God who has everything planned. It's all going according to his plan. And we can rest in that. We're coming to the end of chapter 12. And uh, it's been, I think I, we've had ten parts to chapter 12. 
it is a it is a milestone in the life of the Lord and the work that uh, he did in coming to this earth. You know, we often hear around Easter, we often hear the phrase, the passion of Christ. In fact, uh, Mel Gibson made a movie called The Passion of the Christ. And so we, uh, we think about his passion during those times. And it's usually reserved for the time when Christ went to the cross and suffered his passion. But what we really see throughout the earthly ministry of Christ is passion on every turn. It was passion when he made a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple in John chapter 2. And in verse 17 of John chapter 2, after he had cleared the temple, his disciples remembered that the prophets and the Psalms had predicted that. In fact, Psalm 69 verse 9 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Just about everything that Jesus did was passion. It was passion when he stood in the temple and cried out with a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. In John chapter 7, Jesus' whole life was encircled by passion and that passion was his desire to glorify the father and complete the mission that he had received from above in fact this passion was prophesied hundreds of years before christ by the prophet isaiah who said in chapter 9 and verse 7 <coughs> of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward forevermore. Now the last line of that verse says this. The zeal of the Lord will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That zeal is God's passion. As we come to the end of chapter 12, we find that, that record, John recording a major transition in this gospel account. The first 12 chapters of John's gospel is many times called the book of signs because Jesus performed many signs and miracles uh, during his earthly ministry in the first 12 chapters. It was to prove who he was, that he was the Messiah. Chapters 13 through 19 are often called the book of passion, which speaks of his ardent and comprehensive teaching of his disciples. He has he has passionately finished his earthly ministry, public ministry, and now he is going to passionately teach his disciples. 
The last three chapters of the book of John are called the book of victory, which tells of his resurrection, of his ascension back to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now we're not, we really are not surprised that we find such passion in the words and works of Christ. I want you to notice in verses 44 through 50, at the end of chapter 12, there is, in a sense, a capsule of the gospel in very succinct terms. Jesus' public ministry and miracles are over. He will not do any more miracles publicly after this. There is one miracle that he does, but it is not in it's not a public thing. It just was with the very few people that were there at the time, and the majority of those people were his enemies. His public teaching is also over. He has departed from the Jews and has hidden himself from them. Where did he go? The scripture doesn't tell us exactly where he went. Perhaps he and his disciples went back to Bethany where his friends lived there. At any rate, Jesus' heart must have been breaking because we find him at this point in the Synoptic Gospels standing and looking at Jerusalem and crying out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets that were before you, I would have gathered you together like a a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you would not. John had said in his introduction to this gospel that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The exact time of these words, verses 44 through 50, the exact time they were spoken is not clear. They seem to be out of place chronologically. But they are, like much of the other terms of gospel that Jesus preached, they are very much the same. John chapter 5, verse 24. John 8, verse 19. John 10, verse 38. Very similar to the words we find here, with the exception of just a very few. So let's, let's unpack what Jesus is saying here in these last verses of chapter 12. I want you to notice first verses 44 and 45. They seem to stand uh, alone in the sequence of what he is saying here. It says, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes in not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees Him who sent me. Now there are only five places in the Gospels where it is said that Jesus cried out. Two of those instances were on the cross. Matthew 27 verse 46 and verse 50. 
He cried out when he was on the cross. There are others that are mentioned in John's gospel when he cried out. One was in chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths. And the other is in chapter 11, verse 43, at the tomb of Lazarus as he cried out for Lazarus to come forth from the dead. The last one is here at the end when he responds to the Jews' final rejection of him as Messiah. His message contains and emphasizes the danger and the consequences of refusing and rejecting his words, which were spoken so that people would believe and be saved. It is always a fatal error to dismiss or discount the Word of God. People do it every day. And, in fact, ridicule and, and mockery towards the Word of God and towards the name of God and Christ it seems to be prevalent now in our society. People seem to not be be ashamed to take the name of God or the name of Christ or the Word of God or the Bible and make fun of it or discredit it in a public way. My wife and I watched some videos yesterday of people making fun of hell, making jokes about hell. How they had been there and how they had done this and they had done that and so on and so forth. Then we watched some videos of people actually actually ridiculing Christ. One comedian, a woman, I can't remember her name, in a stand-up comic act was doing this. And no sooner had she said that, that she passed out and fell and hit the floor and caused a a concussion in her brain. Do people, people don't realize the consequences of using God's name in vain, of blaspheming His name. These words of Christ contain a message of both belief and unbelief. They are applicable to those who do not believe and to those who do. Now I want you to notice the content of this declaration in verses 44 and 45. That there is, in these verses, there is the absolute necessity of Jesus' equality with the Father. He is already said in John chapter 10, verse 30, that the fa- I and the Father are one. So this is an affirmation of His deity. Now a person may say, oh, I believe that Jesus was a good man. <coughs> I believe that He was a great prophet. I just, but I just don't believe that He was God. I just believe in God in heaven. Well, you, you really can't say that. Because Jesus plainly says here to believe in Him is to believe in God. For the two are one. 
That means that it is an impossibility to believe in the God of heaven and not believe in Christ. Knowing Christ means knowing the Father. Loving Christ means loving the Father. Receiving Christ means receiving the Father. And you cannot have one without the other. Likewise, the ones who see Jesus, as he says in verse 45, (coughs) the ones who see Jesus see the Father as well. For he is the exact image of the Father, Colossians 3 tells us. But what does it mean to see Jesus? I've never seen Jesus with my physical eyes. Neither of you. <clears throat> to see what it, what it means is that one beholds him through faith. One sees him by faith in what the scriptures say. It is a, it's a present tense. It's a constant gaze. A constant gaze at the character and life of Christ. It is an acknowledgement of the glory of God in the person of Christ. To see Jesus this way is to behold the Father and to have eternal life. I remind you of John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him, you see the connection Looking and believing, who looks and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So not only is there the promise of eternal life, there is the promise of resurrection from the dead. The words believe, or believes, and sees in these verses are present tense verbs. It's not that one... One finds or information or understands information about Christ and they believe once. No, it is a constant believing. It is a, it is a day by day, even hour by hour believing and seeing Christ. It's not that one believes and then goes their own, on their own way. Because once you see Christ through the eyes of faith and and you have eternal life, you you never take your eyes off of Him to the point, your eyes of faith off of Him, to the point that you abandon that. It's impossible to do. It's a lifestyle of beholding the Son and the Father. It's a constant gaze through the eye of faith every day, all the time. There's coming a time in chapter 14 when Jesus is teaching his disciples and Philip says to him, show us the Father. Was Philip not listening when Jesus said in verse 44 and 45, if you believe in me, you believe in the Father. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And still you do not know me, Philip? In 
know, that those words are comfort to me. Because here's Philip. He's been with the Lord all this time, walking with him, being taught by him, seeing the miracles that he'd done. Hearing him say over and over again that what I say and what I do comes from the Father in heaven. And still he does not recognize these things. Sometimes we're, we're a bit thick as believers. We don't remember. We don't gaze into the face of our Lord enough. This is where the Jews failed. They would not believe. They would not see. And they could not see because of it. In John chapter 8 verse 19, he said, they said to Jesus, Where is your father? He answered, You neither know me or my father. For if you knew me, you would know the Father. Those are comforting words too. Do you realize that your, your connection with Christ through faith has, has put you in the presence of the Father? That you are His child? That you can, you can run to Him and crawl up into His lap, so to speak, by faith, and call Him Daddy? They couldn't see the Father through the Son because they were blind to Him. They had, their hardened hearts resulted in a total blindness of His person. And they denied Him and they died in their sins. Notice verse 46. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, Jesus reemphasizes that people are in the darkness of sin. This is, the, this is a spiritual darkness that he's talking about here. He's not talking about the uh, the nighttime or being plunged into a place where it's, where it's dark and your physical eyes can't see. He's talking about sin and the darkness of sin. He came to shine His light, which is a... His light is the righteous light, the righteousness of God. So that the darkness is dispelled. The promises that God makes concerning sin and forgiveness are those are for those who believe. They're not for the unbelieving. It is true that the gospel is proclaimed to the world and in a sense it goes out to a very wide audience of hearers but it only illuminates and affects those who believe. Everyone else that rejects it and, are, and is hardened by it, they go on and they are left to the hardening of their own hearts. 
And they continue in that darkness. As resistance to God continues, the darkness becomes more intense. To the point that people not only cannot see the truth, but they will not see the truth. John chapter 1 verse 4. Turn back to chapter 1 if you would please so that you can see it. I'm going to tie some things together here. John chapter 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Do you see the connection between light and life? Light. Life is characterized as the light of men. In verse 5, the light... Shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. It could not extinguish it. And because it could not extinguish it, it was appropriated by men. So now men who were once darkness have become light. Paul says to the Corinthians, you are light. For you do not live in darkness, or that the darkness may overtake you. That appropriation is by faith in Christ Jesus. Who said in chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Without him, the world is plunged Into total darkness. Even though people can, and because they are created in the image of God, they can discern a certain level of light morally. In humankind. Which are the remnants of God's image in them. This is why everybody... Everywhere in the world knows that it's wrong to kill someone else, to murder. They know it's wrong to to do certain things because God's image is stamped on them as a a human being. So there's the sense of, of light in that sense. But it is limited only to the physical world. Spiritually, they cannot, they cannot have thoughts of light. They cannot have thoughts of righteousness. For they are darkness. This is the main point. For example, men, people can understand uh, mechanics, they can understand science, they can understand art, they can understand philosophy, they can understand relationships, but in spiritual matters, they are still dark. If, if the world wanted to see and understand what real light is, all they have to do is look at Jesus. 
There they would see genuine truth. They would see righteousness and goodness. But in their blindness, they never will. It's like trying to open a book in a, in a dark cave where there's no light and say, here, look at this. You can't do it. Now notice what's connected to this in verses 47 to 50. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. There is an emphasis here. That has changed from verse 47, which speaks of light. Now he is speaking uh, from the standpoint of believing, from believing and, and seeing to hearing. Please don't misunderstand what is being said here. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that's all the way that it comes. It is not by any work of righteousness or goodness that you or I could do. If you're doing, if you're doing or you're standing for or you're working for God is based on yourself or in your ability or in your talent or in your fervor for Him or what you feel you must do before God to win His favor, it will not be accepted. That's a hard thing. You can't do anything that would cause God to look at you with favor, no matter how hard you try. Have you ever thought to yourself or of yourself, look what I've done. Look how faithful I've been. I'm doing pretty good. I'm, look what I'm doing for the glory of God. Or, or I've got to show people that I'm standing for the gospel. All of these statements are self-focused. All of these evaluations have to do with self. The only thing that will make God look at you with favor and mercy is the imputed righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and your relationship by faith in Him. It's all bound up in relationship. Listen to what Paul says to Titus. He saved us. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So God saves an individual not because of anything in them, not because of any deed they did or they could do, but completely and only because of His own desire to give them mercy. Now in that, Jesus speaks very clearly about judgment. Judgment is not a popular topic. No one wants to be judged. And yet, people choose to be judged by rejecting Christ. Who are these people? They are the ones mentioned in verses 42 and 43 of this chapter who it says believed in Him but would not confess Him. Their faith was spurious. Their faith was ungenuine or ingenuine. It was a faith in word only. There are people who, who inside said, oh, I believe in Jesus. You'll find people everywhere like that who will say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believed in Jesus since I was a kid. But they wouldn't confess Him. They wouldn't take a stand in faith for Him for fear of being ridiculed or rejected. This is the seed that falls on the rocky ground and it springs up, but the winds of persecution come and it withers away. These are people who say they believe, but they do not obey His commands. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. And when the rains came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall because it was founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the winds blew and the floods came and beat on that house, it fell, and great was the fall of it. Why that last phrase? Why didn't he just say it fell? Why did he have to say great was the fall of it? Because the consequences are eternal. That's why. So we can see that true faith in Christ is shown by being obedient to what He has said and commanded. It's shown by, what is, by being obedient to what He has said and commanded. Turn to James chapter 2 with me, please. This is very confusing to many. Because there are literally... Thousands and thousands of people who say they have faith in Jesus, 
but are not obeying His commands. The work that He is talking about is obedience to His commands. Notice what James says in chapter 2, verse 14 and following. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? There's nothing in that. What kind of obedience does that show? When we are commanded to make others more significant than ourselves. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. (coughs) Remember, the works that he's talking about here (coughs) is simply the command to obey what he said. If you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac? What in the offering of Isaac does that have to do with works? Abraham, notice it says, you will see that faith was active along with his works. In other words, Abraham was obeying the command of God in carrying out what he did with his son. And so the scripture is fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. This is not a contradiction. There are literally thousands of people working and doing, all while they think in their, thinking that in their doing, the things they do, they are right with God. They're not. No amount of doing can please God. And there are others who think they're right with God because they make a a verbal assent to believing, but they're not being obedient to His words. That, That too will not make a right relationship with God. One's doing and working for God must come from one's relationship of salvation in Christ. It must come through faith. Ask yourself, when you're doing things that you believe are right before God or that you believe God wants you to do, ask yourself, why am I doing this this way? Because the salvation relationship and the works you do go together. 
They cannot be separated. This is what it means to keep His Word. Keeping comes from believing. There is an unbroken connection between believing and obeying. Turn to John chapter 3. John 3. Just a few chapters back. I want you to notice verse 36. This is, this is the clearest explanation of what it means to believe in the words of Christ and the works that go with it. Notice what he says in verse 36, 336. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Present tense. Both, both are present tense. In other words, it, should, it could read, it should read, whoever is believing in the Son has, is having eternal life. Now notice the next phrase. Whoever does not obey, whoever refuses to go along with, Whoever refuses to follow, whoever is disobedient to the Son, shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. It remains on him. Draw a line between the word believes and obeys. Because this is the works that we're talking about. It's not the deeds you do. It's not the accomplishments you make. It is the simple act of believing what Christ said and obeying. It's the greatest testimony you have that you're born again. Is that you take seriously the commands of Christ and you seek to do them or keep what he says in your life. That comes out in works that are done through faith, which is the only way you can please God. Now notice the next thing that Jesus says. Back to our passage in 12. The next thing Jesus says here is about judgment. And it sounds confusing, but it's really not when you, when you unpack it correctly. Jesus said he did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save it. And that's a true statement. When Jesus came, he is, this judgment that he's talking about is a judgment that's not yet. It's coming. That judgment day is coming. He talks about it as, speaks of it as the last day. That's when the judgment will happen. And I'm assuming then that after that, time will cease to exist. And there won't be any more day or or night. Things that we judge days by. 
The judgment he's speaking of here is the or the, the thing that he's saying here is that he came into the world not to judge. He did, the first time he came, it wasn't to judge. Even though he has been given the right to judge in the future. John chapter 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one. Now remember, what Christ does... The Father does, and what the Father does, Christ does. That means that the Father is judging no one at this present time. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son for a future judgment. Verse 27, He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So if people do not hear and come under the authority and obedience of His Word, they will be judged by His Word. That's how the judgment will be. He will will use His own Word to judge those who were disobedient to it. And they will have no recourse to appeal to There is a future judgment coming, and Jesus is going to be that judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, he said, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. For those who believe, for those who are obedient to his word, which is the reason they are obedient is because they believe, will not come under judgment for sin. Oh, what a glorious thought. That my sin, which is so great, He will not bring up against me. Now, the reason for such threatening words of judgment against those who do not believe is because these are the words of the Father from heaven. Verse 49. They were given to Christ by the Father Himself. The emphasis is very strong. That Jesus is not just saying this on His own accord. It was the Father that said this. And Jesus is repeating it. The warnings of impending judgment came directly from the throne of God in heaven. He's the one that gave the commandment. Jesus always obeyed and did and spoke exactly what the Father told him to say and do. So Jesus said to them, chapter 5, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. His Word is established from heaven. Now why is that so important that the Father would say this Himself? Why would He emphasize that so much? Because all that Jesus does in His work of redemption leads to eternal life. 
and is and it bypasses the horrible judgment of sin on the last day. It is at this point that the Father has planned all this has been planned for the Son from eternity past, and it's all coming to fulfillment in this last part of chapter 12. Jesus is submitted to and He is committed to the Father's plan. That's why He says in verse 50, I know that His commandment is eternal life. And what, shall, what I say therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And they hated Him for it. Now let me give just a little conclusion here. I've got about five minutes left to do this. A little bit of a conclusion on chapter 12. There are two things that I want you to see that are evident concerning the life of Christ in His words and His works up to this point. First of all, this chapter and the previous chapters before it teach... It teaches us that it is vitally important not to try and separate Christ's words from His works. His words and His works go together. From the beginning of His public ministry, Christ's works were, were widely accepted. Uh, unless He performed them on the Sabbath. Then the Jews had a problem with that. But nobody... nobody Stiffened their neck or balked at or, uh, or anything about the works that Christ did. They were all good works. He healed people. He fed people. He helped people. He raised the dead that had died for people. No one objected when the paralytic man in Mark chapter 2 verse 5 was raised from his sickbed. But when Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven, oh, now there's a problem. See, nobody, nobody would object to him raising this man up who had been lame. But when he said, go, your sins are forgiven, his words now overshadow what he had done. And the Jews said, oh, only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? Well, he was God. That was the whole point. That's why he said, so that you will know that the Son of Man came from the Father. I say to you, rise up. Your sin, go. Your sins are forgiven. And the scribes accused him of blaspheming. When he fed the multitude by an act of creation, they wanted to make him their king. But later in the temple, these same people whom he had fed, these same people were, were ready to stone him when he said, I am the bread of life. Well, they were glad when he fed them. Oh, but now that he's calling himself the bread of life, making himself equal with God, his words caused a 
a wedge. These last words of Jesus recorded in chapter 12 calls upon his hearers, John calls upon his hearers to believe his words if for no other reason than that for, than that for his works. Even Jesus said that to them. If you won't believe what I say, at least believe for my work's sake. And truly, people are no different today. They're no different than they were in Jesus' day. They, they were willing to admit that he was a great man. They were willing to admit that he had done wonderful things. But when it came to his commands to repent and forsake themselves and follow him, they resisted. And sometimes violently. So you can't separate his words from his work. Second, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John has written three separate incidents to conclude the Lord's public ministry in Jerusalem. One, the first one, was Mary anointing the Lord's uh, body in light of his coming death in verses 1 through 8. Second was the triumphal entry into Jerusalem as, as the king, and they shouted, Hosanna! Uh, Lord save now in verses 9 to 19. And the third was the request of the Greeks to have a personal audience with Jesus in verses 20 through 50. In these three incidents, John is drawing us to see three things. One, the first thing is that there is nothing in life that is too costly or too valuable that it should not be given to Christ. Mary gave the most expensive thing that she had when she anointed his body for burial. What's the most, what's the most valuable thing you have? Is it your own life? Is it, is, it your, is it your possessions? Is it your children? Is it your wife or your husband? And truly those things are valuable. But there is nothing that we have that is too valuable that Christ is not worthy to have it. Frankly, I would love to have my son live near me so that I could see him and visit with him and do things with him. But he is not so valuable that I would withhold him from Christ. Second, our view of the glory of Jesus should always be in connection to his loving sacrifice of himself on the cross. This was Paul's saying to the Corinthians, I don't want to hear anything among you except Christ and him crucified. If you want to, if you want to talk about something, if you want to boast in something, if you want to brag about something, brag about the cross of Christ. Third, 
It was the Jews' rejection of Jesus that sent him to that cross. But it was on that cross that he opened the way of salvation for people all over the world and not just to the Jews. You can see these three incidents in chapter 12 coinciding with a central theme, and that theme is the cross. It's the cross. So I I can't withhold anything from Christ because He gave everything on the cross. He's worthy to have the best that I have. The cross is the glory of Christ. The cross is the way of salvation that came to me because the Jews sent Him to the cross. The cross then becomes the central focus of our message of Christ. And in fact, that was the desire of the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved day by day because we are believing, we are continuing to believe, it is the power of God. For God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Notice it says, it does not say to save those who, un, who are not believing. It's to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, but the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both of Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If we have anything to boast in, if we have anything to brag about, let it be in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord of all who believe. And so ends chapter 12. Now in chapter 13, we will be going, we will be going into a brand, another phase of the work of Christ where Christ is exclusively teaching His disciples. We're going to draw some pictures about that, Lord willing, next week. If the Lord tarries. All right. I have a